Would you like to live a healthier, happier, and more fulfilled life? Cultures from all over our planet have been addressing that concern for thousands of years, and their answers can help you in your life today. Join anthropologist and healer Robert Vetter as he introduces you to cultures of health and healing. Get ready now to try out some healing beliefs and practices from far and wide. Here's the host of your show, Robert Vetter. Welcome, everybody, in my podcast family. I am so lucky today to have Dr. Leslie Korn with me. Leslie Korn founded the Center for Traditional Medicine, a pro bono integrative natural health clinic in the indigenous communities of rural West Mexico in 1977, which she directed for over 25 years. She was awarded a Fulbright for research there on ethnobotany and the study of community trauma in 2010. She's held a number of faculty positions at universities and has been in clinical practice in integrative medicine, specializing in natural medicine and traditional healing methods for mental health for over 40 years. Her center raises funds for their Nutrients for Natives program and medical massage for diabetes, both pro bono programs serving native individuals in the United States and Mexico. She's Director of Research at the Center for World Indigenous Studies, a nonprofit American Indian organization based in Washington State. Her focus is on consultation to tribal communities on treatment of trauma, diabetes, and chronic pain using cultural revitalization strategies, using traditional medicine, herbal, and culinary practices. The CTM and CWIS were funded by the NIH to conduct research on polarity therapy with native dementia caregivers and to mentor minority researchers in mind-body medicine. Dr. Korn's PhD is in behavioral medicine and she has an MPH from Harvard School of Public Health and an MA in cross-cultural health psychology from Lesley University. She completed a clinical fellowship in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, where she introduced bodywork for chronic illness into outpatient community psychiatry in 1985. She's the author of eight books, two in Spanish. Her new book entitled Natural Woman Herbal Remedies for Radiant Health at Every Age and Stage of Life is published by Shambhala Random House. That is one impressive bio, Dr. Korn. I feel so fortunate to have you here joining us today. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be with you, Bob. And today, I was hoping that we could explore your story because there is an absolutely fascinating story behind what got you from where you started to where you are right now, which, uh, just to let everybody know, I am speaking to Dr. Korn while she is in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. So take us with, through a journey of your life, if you would. Well, Bob, as, a, as a, someone who was born in Boston, you can appreciate I decided Mexico's weather was much more perfect than is found on the East Coast. So let's focus on what's important here, <laughs> a little summit, sun and warm weather. Um, but, you know, I was very fortunate to travel to Mexico for the first time in 1973. I had grown up in the suburbs of Boston and just couldn't wait to get out. 
Uh, I knew from a very young age, it, for whatever reason, whether it was divine intervention or being guided by destiny, uh, it, it kind of is a big question, but I knew from very young that I had a vision of living in the jungle, doing health work. And I had that vision at the age of nine, and I was really champing at the bit until I left at the age of 20. So um, before I left, however, I think the groundwork was laid because as you, you point out and you describe in my work, it's certainly focused on health, it's focused on mind, body, and spirit, but it's also rooted in social justice. And so I've had this commitment uh, to use our health and, and understand that our health is not just personal, it's political. And as a teen in Boston, uh, it was just the right time. Uh, we were, as you recall, um, demonstrating against the war. Uh, it was the burgeoning time of, in my case in Cambridge, of the collective called Our Bodies, Ourselves. And I had an opportunity, really as a young feminist, to consider self-care and self-determination of women and women's health. So you'll uh, get a kick out of the fact that I carried my tattered newspaper style first edition, Our Bodies, Ourselves, when I traveled to the first time to Mexico. And it was really quite a circuitous route. I, I dropped out of the university. Though my first year at the university, I was very fortunate to meet uh, an important mentor, and I can talk about him a little later. Um, and so I, I knew that I was seeking something that I couldn't find in a conventional university setting. And so it all came together and I knew not where I was going or even why, except I had dreams of being a writer and I needed to live a life, uh, that allowed me some of the space and time to develop. I'd been introduced to meditation and yoga uh, as a teen. And uh, I got on a third class bus at the border, not speaking a word of Spanish, and went on my adventure, ending up in Puerto Vallarta and then later south of Vallarta in a number of small indigenous villages that could only be reached by boat. And I will tell you, I was happy as a clam and did not want to leave and virtually didn't uh, the first round for 10 years and then uh, another 15 years until I, I left for, for a much longer period. But I maintain my roots there both uh, it, with my heart and with my work as well. Beautiful. So. To get back to, you left at 20, and I'm, I'm trying to piece together the formal part of your education, and then maybe we can look at what, what you learned from being in the indigenous communities, because it, it seems like there's this back and forth flow between what you were able to absorb and what you have been giving back throughout your lifetime. 
Yes. Well, I, I uh, went to university for two years, uh, but was very unhappy and dissatisfied. I, I would say I experienced uh, education trauma. I was very unhappy in school. And I think this really became a theme because as soon as I arrived in the jungle, I, had, I was asked to start a school. And so I was able to create a school that I'd always wanted to go to. I taught math by teaching uh, measurements and cooking and baking. We talked about and learned biology by looking at the polywogs. Uh, we read National Geographics and studied, uh, you know, all kinds of things experientially. I taught dance and meditation while the children listened to Ravel. And really, it was a healing experience to have, you know, barely graduated high school. Um, really loved studying, but hated the confines of the university. And so it was really part of my healing adventure to uh, feel right at home in the jungle. There were no cars or roads. There was no electricity. I got sick with absolutely everything. And thus became a laboratory for learning how to restore health through using nature and herbs and plants and all of the gifts that nature offered. And so, um, as you know, one um, often finds the antidote in the blood of the wound. And so that was my first foray into developing education that was experiential and engaged the mind and the body and the spirit and didn't just privilege the left brain. So I'm curious to know about this. You, so you were called to create this school. And I'm just curious to know how you got to be involved in the community and what it is that you, you learned from them about healing since ultimately you became a healer. So what what was the the nature of your the interaction between you and the people and how did you learn about healing from them mm. it was very organic i didn't go there with any intention uh except to live and to heal myself and to have the time to consider my life and and what i wanted to do and it was really an organic evolution, just living with people and becoming friends with people. And then, as I say, when you get sick, you learn to look to people in the environment. In, as you well know from your own work, there are often uh, specialists, someone who addresses this illness or someone who puts together this herbal compound. Everybody has a kitchen pharmacy. Some people are a little more gifted here or there. And so it was uh, just very organic living day to day uh, and connecting with women in particular, both men and women. But I certainly had an affinity. And as a young feminist, really an understanding of the challenges that many of the women experienced. This was pr really just prior to the 
widespread use of birth control. I, so we, what happened is we started a little clinic where I gave classes. Now, I, uh, the, the, the classes for children were a little different. Those were basic reading and writing classes and it kind of integrative education classes. But we ended up starting a little health clinic in which I could share information about reproductive health. This was long before vasectomies. Women, many women were having eight, nine, ten children. Uh, still, uh, many of them did not want that many children. There, there was, and to some degree still is, sharp divisions around role identities. And so um, I was learning as much from them about health, about their lives, about their challenges, and and really what they wanted from me uh, as much as uh, what I wanted from them, which was to learn and to be connected and the dailiness of life. I think one of the things that was so healing was just the day-to-day -day nature of living close in thatched roof houses. You, we used to joke that you knew when someone flush their toilet, eventually flush toilets came in because it, it was such a small community. These communities range from 20 to 700 people. So different from, let's say, the nuclear family community that I'd grown up in and all that separation that we know occurs. So there was so much around community life, sharing, being invited. And, you know, even not speaking the language for the first year, you would just learn to go sit. And as you know, you sit with people. You don't even have to talk. You just sit for hours and <laughs> you are there together. Uh, so there was just huge learning for me. And then whatever I had to offer. Um, I remember once I was doing a class on reproductive health, you know, and these were women who did not have mirrors. Um, and the religious and spiritual practices were quite syncretic um, in terms of Catholicism. And so there were, they didn't have mirrors in terms of doing breast exams or even knowing how to do breast exams. So this was often... Uh, some of the topics, along with reproductive health. And I remember one day the visiting priest, the priest would come visit every once a week, came by knocking on my little palapa saying, you know, what are you doing <laughs> talking about reproductive health? And so I was very pleased to go up against the, the local representative of the Catholic Church. Um, so things just evolved. That's all I can say. And then my own evolution uh, uh, learning different kinds of techniques. I'd been introduced to acupuncture by my men, one of my early mentors, and then later studied um, different kinds of hands-on healing technique, and then just began offering that and practicing that. And that's really where I learned my craft. Um, and so the clinic evolved from there so that over the years up until, I ran it up until 2002 and uh, worked with local people. We had training programs and 
health promoters, teaching people how to take blood pressure, blood glucose, but also mental health, uh, helping with the addictions, you know, all the very various ranges of problems that people began to experience. Because at this time, really, I was maybe fortunate, I guess we could say, or unfortunate to see that the transition during these years, Bob, was between acute illness due to what we think of as lack of infrastructure, lack of potable water, and the kinds of acute infectious disease that we were seeing. And then we saw an almost sudden reversal into chronic illness with the introduction of refined foods, massive antibiotic use over the counter, uh, the, the onset of diabetes, heart disease, the introduction of pesticide use. So it was really during these years of the 80s where that transition began to take place. Alongside the transition of migration, these were the years that the communities, for various reasons, had to begin migrating north, often breaking apart the fabric of the families where some people went up into often California, Washington, or even the East Coast, the Carolinas uh, in particular in those years. So then you saw increased family stressor, increased use of alcohol. You know, so it was this kind of conflagration of what one perhaps anthropologist called defective development, the downside of development, or the pressures of development, and what I call nutrition trauma, the introduction of foods that are unsuitable for a population into their lives that leads to chronic health problems. So this was the gestalt of this, both this time period and the evolution of my work. So I wanna go a little onto a slightly different topic, for the last few minutes, if you don't mind. I see something in you that I see in myself, and you can tell me whether I have this right or wrong, but I've always had a, a tension in my life between professional academia and what I consider my life's work. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's been, uh, in the back of my mind, I always have a, a critique of Western-style education. Mm -hmm and what it, what it does and doesn't do. I mean, I remember when I completed my degree, which was a master's degree in anthropology at the University of Oklahoma, I remember thinking back, reflecting back on the, the time that I had spent there and thinking that, you know, I, I took all these courses, I learned from these professors, but honestly, what made a difference to me in my life was the native people that I had been with in doing my field work because I mm -hmm. did my ethnography among the, the Comanches and the Kiowas. And I thought back, the time with the elders is what really mattered to me in my life. And the, the courses were sort of, I don't know, they were, they were sideline, they were, they were garnish. Mm -hmm. And I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I mean, I've asked you about your life and you have told me zero about the academic side of it, <laughs> even though it's in your, your bio. So can you address that? Do, am I sure. on track here or not? Yeah, I, I, was, I always 
think that I was very lucky to have the influence. I spent 10 years in the jungle before returning to academic life. I was raised in an academic family and so it was expected, but also it, it's, I found it intellectually stimulating, but really vapid in terms of its um, denigration of application. And to me, nothing really matters a whole lot unless we can apply it. And in my case, I feel like we need to improve lives and improve community health. So um, I, I think we're getting a little better in academia. But nevertheless, I feel very fortunate that, you know, I spent 10 years and then felt like I'd done everything I knew how to do. And I was really passionate about ethnobotany. I, you know, I had 10 years, really almost eight to 10 years with my clinic and um, was just going by hook or by crook. It was all pro bono. You know, I was living on eggs and, you know, nopales that were given to me and didn't have a penny in my pocket. And I felt like I wanted to learn more about public health and about tropical health. I was passionate in those days, the early 80s, about parasitology and about uh, the use of proteolytic enzymes uh, as anti-parasitics. And so I was ready to return to, as I say, the jungle of Boston. So I think let's say they're both jungles. And I felt like, you're right, I... I haven't as much felt tension as much as one place is a nice place to visit, but not live. And that's how I always felt about academia. I, and I feel like this with my students too. I tell them, get the keys to the door so you don't have to bang it down, but um, put it in perspective of what an academic education is. And it does generally give you the keys to the door, but um, you still have to carry something of value. I remember when I was teaching psychologists and psychiatrists about the importance of touch back at Harvard Medical School back in the mid-80s, I was almost thrown out for, for heretical thinking, basically. The idea that we are, would touch a patient, the idea that the sickest of our patients, who I believe need to be touched therapeutically. I don't mean casual touch or sexual touch. I mean therapeutic rituals of touch and healing to help them re-regulate and self-regulate the complex psychophysiology that's out of whack. And the, um, the response to this, now we've come a long way since the mid-80s, but nevertheless, the response was I had to be crazy. But you know, it was because I'd had 10 years doing this. I had treated thousands of people and saw the benefits of it empirically. And, and at the same time, wanted to understand the stories people had to tell. And in this case, my formal training in psychotherapy, my formal training in what we call talk therapy, narrative therapy, helped me understand that both the body tells the story that the mind can't find words for and helped me understand both the narrative of patients, but also the narrative of the terrain of the body. And so in that sense, I've always felt, because when I teach this to psychologists or psychiatrists, they have to work so hard to get out of their heads and into their bodies. 
and so I'm always glad that <laughs> that was my initial approach. It was much easier to go from the head to the or the body <laughs> to the head than vice versa. Um, so I I think academic work, and these days, as you know, I I do postgraduate trainings in this field for people who are in psychiatry and medicine and mental health and nursing, really to try to help them claim and often reclaim the, the compassionate, heartful reasons that they got into this work. Because I think so many of our programs kind of beat it out of people. And yet people, I think, are initially called as healers and often don't have lots of paths to follow other than the conventional academic. And by the time they survive that, they're, they're still searching. Beautiful. Uh, Dr. Korn, I want to thank you so much for spending some time with us today. And when we come back tomorrow, we're going to be delving more deeply into some of the specific teachings and the specific people who have influenced you in your work. And I have to say, your life story is fascinating and one that, that we're all lucky to hear. Thank you so much. This has been Cultures of Health and Healing with Robert Vetter. Thanks for listening. Please remember to subscribe and rate this show and share it with others. Until next time, remember, your health and healing matter, and you can find your own unique path to optimum wellness.